Well, anyway, I, you know, I, I can't believe uh, that we've only got two weeks to go in this series. Four weeks ago, for those who are, are new, we launched a series called Holy War. And we've been digging into some of the scriptures that were written during a time of war between the people of Israel and the nations around them. Uh, and we've only got uh, two weeks, including this week, left in the series. Um, one of the things that I asked for before we started this series was, was your prayers. And I appreciate those who've been praying. I've done this long enough to know when you, when you press into issues like the ones that we're pressing into in this series that we can expect a lot of spiritual pushback. And so thank you. I felt this week I was supposed to ask one more time um, as a reminder if you could be doing that. Today we're going to share a little bit about uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Next week we're going to share a little bit about the Quran. And I'm just picking up on it would be wise to ask for your prayers um, for protection for myself, our family, our church, as well as that we could just do what this song said. You know, here's my life, Lord. Would you speak what is true and speak it in a God-honoring way? We want to do the best we can to always, always do that. Well, um, as we've been getting close to the end of this series, I just become acutely aware of how little time we have left and how much there is that we won't be able to cover. And that's the primary reason why inside your bulletin we've got a number of resources on the back of your note page that we want to recommend because we'd encourage you to go deeper than we're able to go on a Sunday morning. And here's a couple resources that could be helpful to that end. Uh, this one I haven't been recommending yet until this week. It's a little book called So What's the Difference? It has a number of different religions in it that you can just get a quick summary, a little overview if you want to know a little bit more about Islam or Judaism or some of these other religions. That one is a helpful little tool. Uh, one of the books that we've been recommending throughout the series, we're actually going to read an excerpt from this today. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. This one, one of the reasons I like this one so much is this guy was a devout Muslim who converted to Christianity. And I always find it fascinating to say, what was it that led to your conversion? So that's this book. Uh, there's another one that you can see I've got a couple little tabs in it. Uh, I've been working on this one. Christian Muslim Friend was written by a, a man who for decades has been building bridges between the Christian church and the Muslim community. And so he's got some very important things that he's learned along the way. And then the other two resources are ones we recommend all the time that are helpful, the ESV Study Bible, IVP Application Commentary. They help provide some perspective on the scriptures themselves. So there's some resources I would encourage you to, to consider reading one or more of those. Um, they're very, very helpful. Well, our jumping off point for this series has been the book of Joshua. So let's use that today also as we jump in. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Joshua chapter 23, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, even if you're just visiting today and aren't planning to come back, we'd love for you to go home with a Bible. We've got a stack of them there at the table. Please take one as a gift to you. We're all the way to Joshua chapter 23. If you're not familiar with the book of Joshua, let me just give you a quick synopsis of where we are now in the story. And this is a, a true story of, of God's people and, and a, a season in, in their, their life, in their journey. And at this point in the history here, um, Joshua is now about 110 years old. When the book of Joshua opens, he's already advanced in years, and he takes the handoff from Moses, who had mentored him and coached him. He had been an assistant, an apprentice to Moses, and now he was called into leadership during a time of war. He led the people well. He led them faithfully through this, through years and years and years of, of, of war. And now Israel is at relative peace with the nations around them. Under Joshua's leadership, all of God's promises came to pass, and the nation was in a place of relative peace. And now this seasoned leader, whom God had used mightily, a leader who had faithfully led God's people through those years of war, was 110, and he knew that he had finished his leg of the race. 
So what we're about to read here is, is Joshua gathers the people. It says that he gathers the leaders. He gathers the people and he reminds them of God's faithfulness. He says, don't forget where we've been. As we go into this new season ahead, don't forget where we've been. And that's where we pick, off, pick up Joshua chapter 23. We're going to go verses 1 through 3. All right. A long time afterwards, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges and officers, and he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Joshua is a great leader, and one of the things we see here is a great principle. And that's this principle of pausing at strategic moments to gather everyone together, huddle your leaders, huddle your people, and remind them of what God has done. In fact, there's several places throughout Joshua where they not only do this, they actually physically mark those moments with stones. They actually pile up rocks to, to remind them of what happened. And, and if you hang around here uh, very long, you're going to hear us refer to several milestones that we keep coming back to. Things that we can point to, God's faithfulness, where he's been, where he's taking us, these important events and stories in our life. Emmanuel Covenant Church was God's idea. And especially as we empower new leaders um, with responsibility, and especially as we welcome new members um, into the community, we do the best we can to share key milestones with them. Stories and events that have shaped who we are and who we're becoming. And one of the exciting things about our church is that this list keeps growing. We don't only point back to things that happened, you know, in 2007, 2008. The list keeps growing. God is doing remarkable things in our midst. And it's so exciting to mark those milestones, pause and reflect, and to see what God has done and what he's doing. All right, we're going to jump ahead here to verse 14 as, as Joshua continues to share and say, remember, you guys, let's not forget the lessons we've learned. He says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised have been fulfilled for you, if, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. And if you read all of chapters 23 and 24, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that Joshua repeats a warning like this several times and in several ways. A warning that says, don't forget who God is and what he's called you to. And the reason I think he repeats this is because this was hard-won wisdom. He wasn't just talking theoretical here. The people had seen this. They had experienced this themselves. In fact, one of the things that we looked at in the course of this series, we looked at a situation where literally the people learned the wages of sin was death. Joshua chapter 7. We saw a case of that. And there's also this example from chapter 9. We haven't a chance to look at this yet. We don't have time to go in much depth, but I want to point this out. Another key leadership lesson from Joshua. 
This is Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. The verse says this, The Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. This is a key leadership lesson. Here's just a little bit of context around this. And this is a key teaching, not just for churches, for organizations. This is a key teaching for anyone, for parents, for for anyone who's leading pretty much anything. And they're doing the best they can to try to lead from a Christian perspective. What happened in this situation was there were these people who lived pretty close to the Israelites. But they pretended like they didn't. And they said, we're from far away. And they had put on shoes that were worn out. And they put moldy bread in their sacks. And and they said, look, these shoes, they were brand new when we set out. Look at this food. It was right out of the oven when we set out. We're from far away. Make a treaty with us. You know, because we live way far away. Did we mention that we live far away? And the, the, the leaders looked at the bread and like, man, this bread is nasty. And they look at the shoes and like, they're all worn out. These people must be from far away. But they weren't from far away. And that's where we got this warning that we just looked at. They did not inquire of the Lord. This is a key lesson for us. Because as we as a church continue to grow, we're going to have more and more opportunities before us. We're going to have opportunities to consider different programs. We're going to have opportunities to bring on different staff. We're going to have opportunities. We're going to have to make decisions about facility. We're going to have all these things. And what we don't want to do is only look at what look like all the facts. Is that important? Absolutely. We're supposed to use our minds. But we want to not only look at what looks good, especially when it looks like a no-brainer. We want to do what? We want to inquire of the... Lord. That is a key lesson. It has been part of our church from the past. It is something that we want to make sure that we continue to walk in that, this idea of inquiring of the Lord. I love this quote by a guy named Phil Vischer. He says, there's a difference between a vision from God and what? An idea that you really like. Isn't that true? And it's so easy to talk ourselves into things instead of just inquiring of the Lord, inquiring of the Lord. It was God that led us to the covenant. It was God who gave us our name. It was God who led us to Chippewa Middle School. God who led us to the community center. So let's be sure to continually remind ourselves, God, you've led us in the past. May we be led by you as we go forward. Let's use our minds and let's inquire of the Lord. Now, as you can see, we've just barely gotten started with this message. And and there are all of these leadership lessons in Joshua. So many of them. These are just a few examples There are exceptional lessons on humility and apprenticeship and succession planning. There's important lessons on integrity and courage and perseverance. There are lessons that are extremely applicable to millennials and those who work with them. There's even lessons I found in here for helicopter parents. There's some great stuff in there. Joshua chapter 5. All of these leadership lessons and more can be found in the book of Joshua. But one of the things I try to do each and every week is pray a version of that prayer that we sang, here's my heart, Lord, speak what is true. And as I've been trying to do that as best I can, I feel like here of all the leadership lessons for us to focus on, here's, here's the one. And there's a, this is in your notes too. I'd encourage you to take, a, take your notes out. Here's the leadership lesson, I think, of all these great leadership lessons that we were supposed to focus on today. And in your notes it says, great leaders are a blank's most valuable asset. Let's just spend a little bit of time here talking about what we could fill in that blank. What's one group or one organization where a leader is their most valuable asset? What would be an example of that? Church. I'm glad you guys came up with that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I shared this with the 915 service. and I want to share it with you as well. Our, our church has been through a really hard season um, this last spring and summer. And one of the things that I'm so encouraged by as I look back and reflect on it is that every single one of our lay leaders, every person on our PRC, every person on our board of elders was doing the best they could to inquire of the Lord and to try to walk with integrity and to say, God, what is your heart? And I love that. This is so important. It's the greatest asset that we have as far as earthly assets. What's another group or organization as far as that would be where a, a leader is their greatest asset? Our nation. Oh, my word. Can I say a little word about this? <laughs> I, um, as I was preparing this teaching and I was wrestling with these scriptures, Joshua 23, Josh, leadership. And I was thinking about our country. The thought came to me to just say, would you pray for our nation? You know, I, I'm very guilty of making too many jokes and, and just shaking my head, just so frustrated. I, I was convicted. We need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our nation because great leaders are a nation's most valuable asset. How many of you traveled outside the U.S.? Do, lead, does leaders, do leaders matter? Look at what happens. You go to some of these nations. Huge, huge. Think of great leaders like Lincoln and all these people. Okay, what's another group organization where leadership matters? It's their greatest asset. Family. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that one up. Yes, family. The parents are a family's greatest asset. And if you've traveled throughout the world, you've seen this. Parents who don't have any other worldly assets, if they love their kids and pour into their kids, they're the kid's greatest asset. I've seen other families. They've got all of the stuff, right? All these other assets, money, opportunities. But if the parents aren't parenting in a God-honoring way, huge. What's another organization, another group? Companies. Oh, my word. Um, Jack Welsh was a pretty good leader, right? It made a huge difference. Companies. What else? School. Again, travel around the world or travel around the country. You can have a school that doesn't have any other great assets. They can have terrible buildings. They can have no money. But if they've got great teachers, great principals, it makes all the difference in the world. Let's go a couple more. Sports. Oh, huge. Um, if you've got key leaders in your locker room, athletes that aren't leading well, it affects the whole team. And coaching, we got a great example of this with the Vikings right now, don't we? Your quarterback goes down. Your star running back goes down. Your lo- top linemen are going down. And, and the, the coaches, listen to him. He's not like, oh, we're done for. Season's over, guys. Woe is us. He rallies them. You could fill. I couldn't think of any exceptions here. Leaders are a blank's greatest asset. This might be the first time in history of our church where we just have to leave it blank. We leave our blank blank because you could fill in pretty much anything there. And that's, I think, our big takeaway here from Joshua. Leadership matters. It's any group or organization's most valuable asset. And I would encourage you to just look at the scriptures. A great leadership lesson. If you want to look at a great leadership lesson, Read Joshua through a leadership lens and then just read the very next book of the Bible, which is what? Who knows that? Judges. Look at the difference leadership makes. Look at the difference leadership makes. 
Well, one of the things that struck me as I've been praying this season are some of the similarities and differences between Joshua and the prophet Muhammad. Both claimed to have heard from God. Both had an angel or angel-like encounter. Both of them were engaged in wars. The list goes on and on and on. But one of the things that you certainly see in Islam is that Muhammad holds a status that is far higher than any other earthly leader equivalent that we have in Christianity. He, he holds a very, very high status in his faith that really doesn't have a comparison outside of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in just a minute. And I want to say this before I go any further. I want to make this really important disclaimer. I'm not an expert on Muhammad. I, I won't claim to be. And what I will ask is, is if I say anything here that is inaccurate or misleading, and you can show me from a vetted resource where I'm off, please do, because I don't want to share anything that is misleading or anything that is, that is not true. I would not want people doing that about Christ, with Christianity, right? Let's make sure we, as God's people, don't do that with Islam. Agreed? All right. So um, what I'm trying to do is to, to stick close to my sources here. And, and what I want to do first is read an excerpt from that book, um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, that helps us understand that in Islam, you can't separate Muhammad from Islam. You, you, you can't separate the, the two. Here's the quote. The message of Islam is intertwined with its messenger, meaning Muhammad. Allegiance to one more than, than implies allegiance to the other. It is often defined by it. What makes it surprising is that the same is not the case for Allah. Muslims who question Allah are usually tolerated by other Muslims, but questioning Muhammad is grounds for excommunication or worse. Even though every Muslim would quickly admit that Muhammad is humid, in theory, fallible like any other man, they often revere him as flawless. To that end, Islamic theology has accorded Muhammad this specific title, which means the man who has attained perfection. But far closer to the Muslim heart, Muhammad is a man that embodies Islam, a, a symbol for the whole of Islamic civilization. Because of hadith and tradition, Muslim religion and culture and heritage and identity all find their core in the person of Muhammad. That is why Muslims see and, and attack, or see an attack, sorry, see an attack on his character as equivalent to a personal attack on them and everything they stand for. That is also why, generally speaking, Muslims cannot dispassionately discuss Muhammad. They bring immense baggage to the table. So all this to say, if you're trying to have a discussion with a, a Muslim, be really careful to be respectful in, in doing so. Because if you're going to have a discussion about Muhammad, there's, that's loaded. It's loaded. So make sure that you, the things that you say are accurate, verified, and that you're having a respectful discussion. Early in his book, Nabil, who's the author here, he provides this first-person perspective that, that just helps people understand how Islam sees Muhammad. He says, My mother taught me to love Muhammad because he was the greatest man who ever lived. There was no close second. She taught me that his generosity was abundant. His mercy was incomparable. His love for mankind was beyond measure. I was taught that he would never wage war unless he was defending this term that means the, the Muslims throughout the world. I would never... Uh, wage war unless he was defending them, and that he fought to elevate the status of women and the downtrodden. He was the perfect military leader. He was the ultimate statesman. He was an exemplary follower of Allah. He was a perfect man. He was God's mercy personified for all the world. It was easy to bear witness to, that such a man 
is uh, Razul Allah, the messenger of God. Now, one of the reasons that we recommend some of the books that we do, in particular this one, is that this book um, shows Nabil's search. That he got to a point where he started to say, okay, let me try to fact check what I've been taught. And as he read the Quran um, himself, as he began to look at sources um, from his own faith, he began to see that many of these claims that he had grown up just accepting, he began to question them. And they document some of the reasons why in the book. And after years of trying to prove that Islam was true, what he had been taught was true, and that Christianity was all lies, he came to a point in his life where he prayed this prayer during one of his just moments of anguish because he didn't want to just give up on his faith. He was trying everything he could to hold on to his Muslim faith. But he got to the point where he prayed this. He said, I praise you, Allah. All homage is certainly due to you. But there's so much I don't understand. Why am I speaking to Muhammad in my prayer? He can't hear me. He's dead. Should I not be praying? To, I should not be praying to any man, even if it is the prophet. And why am I wishing peace upon him? I'm not his intercessor. Why does your greatest prophet need anyone to pray peace over him? Think of the significance of this next question. Could you not have given him assurance and peace if he can't have peace if he can't have assurance as the prophet what hope is there for me christianity diverts from islam in countless ways countless ways and one of them is this christianity doesn't rise and fall on any of our prophets priests or king kings except for one who embodied all three of those things, Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to take a moment to write this down in your notes. Jesus did and does things that no other leader can do. And I know there's another blank. We'll get to that other blank in a second. But for now, let's just focus on this much of that thought. Jesus did and does things that no other leader can do. Again, I don't know much about Muhammad, but one of the things that surprised me as I continued to read was the lack of miracles that were associated with him. I figured somebody that was looked at in this kind of light would have a lot of miracles associated with him. I mean, even with Joshua, you've got God using him to have walls come down and sun standing still, and, and, and you don't see the equivalent of that with Muhammad. And there's such a stark contrast then between Muhammad and Jesus on this front because Jesus, eyewitnesses, said that he did things that no one else did. We've got eyewitnesses that testify to Jesus commanding the wind and the waves to be silent as if he was commanding subjects of his kingdom. He healed the sick, multiplied loaves and fish, walked on water. And multiple witnesses testify to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You've got Joshua. What did Joshua say? We just read it earlier. He said, I'm going the way of this earth, meaning I'm going to die. Muhammad went the way of this earth. He died. Jesus Christ died and rose again. Rose again. And here's something interesting. I hope we have time to go back to this next week. The timeline of this, Muhammad lived 500 years after Jesus. This, I think, is so significant. We'll get back to that later as we talk about the Quran, hopefully next week. I think that's so significant. 
Well, Christians believe that Joshua died, Muhammad died, and of the three, Jesus was the only one to rise from the dead, which brings us to the dot, 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 where we left off. Here's the, the rest of that, that phrase. Jesus did and does things that no other leader can do. What? Without his without his help, because we believe that because he died and rose again, our sins can be forgiven through him. We believe that his spirit can abide in us, that we can do these amazing things, experience these amazing things through him. Christians believe that the teachings of Jesus can do more than help us tip the scales in our favor if we follow the teaching. We believe that we can receive forgiveness of our sins through Christ. And we also believe the very spirit of Christ can dwell in us. And that brings us to Scott. Scott, thanks for sitting through two services here, my friend. Um, Scott and I go way, way, way back um, to the time when I thought I knew everything. And they'll testify to that. I thought I knew everything. And uh, two weeks ago, um, Scott joined us here at the service. And he just said, hey, I got a story. And he shared that story. And I would love for you guys to hear the story that he shared a couple weeks ago. So thanks again for coming and sharing that with us. Yeah, my pleasure, Chris. Um, yeah, and it's good to reconnect with Chris after uh, many years. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I've been doing in the last few years is learning how to reach out to Muslims uh, and have lots of conversations with them. And I love doing that because there's a lot of common things that we that we have. One of those is the person of Jesus Christ, or who they call Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. And so I love talking to them about him and those things. Because the Quran says, listen to Isa, he'll show you the straight path. We believe that same thing. John writes, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, I'll show you the straight path. Uh, but there's also a lot, as Chris said, there's also a lot of differences and one of those things is how you overcome shame and things like that. And shame is a big deal and for, for many people, a lot of us, and also especially for them. You know about honor killings. You know how people get, the black sheep of the family get uh, ostracized or whatever um, because they brought shame onto the, as Chris said, the Ummah, the community, the family, the, the religion, the country, whatever. Um, and so that's kind of a, that's kind of a big deal. At another church, I've been part of a team that helped adopt five Iraqi refugee families. We got to know them over years. We're good friends with them and so on. We invite them to church. We uh, uh, started working with a couple of the guys uh, in this last year. So at Easter time, uh, as we're getting ready to break for the weekend, one of the guys, Omar, comes up to me and says, Happy Easter, boss. And I said, Well, thank you, Omar. I said, you know, Easter for me is, is like a better holiday than Christmas because of what Jesus has done for me. Um, because he's died and he's, and he's still alive, that um, there's a whole lot of peace and assurance that, that I can have. And I, and I go through the thing about how Satan's going to accuse me that no matter how many good things I've done, how many times I've gone to church, pray, whatever, read my Bible, that Satan's still going to say, nah, you're still a bad person inside. Uh, but I also believe that Jesus, Esau, is going to stand there and say, back off, Satan. Because of what I've done, my righteousness is his righteousness. He's worthy to come in. I said, Omar, I said, I believe that, that Esau al-Masih has taken away my shame and gives me his righteousness. And Omar's eyes opened up and said, shame? I said, yep. I said, he takes away my shame. 
and then Mahmoud comes up and I go through the same story. But the thing is, is that there are, there are moments like that where you can have great, you can have great conversations and, and again, build up bridges on those things. And, uh, you know, anytime I run into Muslim, uh, a Muslim and we'll talk, sometimes we'll end up talking about prayer. We'll talk about scripture. We'll talk about all kinds of things. And I, and I, and I'm first one to tell them I am not perfect. I'm still learning what it means to follow Jesus, but I'll, but I share with them those things that I'm learning, particularly the things I'm learning most recently about. So. Hand for Scott. Thanks for sharing that. Appreciate that. You know, Jesus is unique. He can do things if if what we believe is true. Jesus can do and does things that no other leader can do. He can remove shame. Muhammad can't remove shame. Joshua can't remove shame. Your pastors can't remove shame. Jesus of Nazareth can. And not only can he do those things that no one else can do, he can also work in and through us. And I believe Scott responded to a prompting of the Holy Spirit. We have more than just the teachings. We actually have the Spirit of Christ prompting us and leading us and then putting all these things together and just putting us at the right place at the right time. Here's something else I want to encourage you to write in your notes that kind of brings us together. Jesus' amazing life was accompanied by an amazing what? Grace. Jesus' amazing life was accompanied by amazing grace. I want to do the best I can to try to, to help, under, help us understand why that matters. Why that matters. Why you need both of those things. In response to the amazing grace that we receive, here's an invitation that God calls every leader to extend. He says, be imitators of me as I'm what? Imitators of Christ. Be imitators of me as I'm trying to live in this amazing grace and follow the amazing life, the amazing example that Jesus set. If we could do both of those things, as we say, follow me as I follow Christ, if we could say, I want to I encourage you and inspire you to live the life that Jesus lived, and I want to help you encounter the grace that he leaves. That makes a huge difference. It's, it's the good news of the gospel, the amazing life, and the amazing grace. And I want to give you a concrete example of the difference that that can make. This week, um, I was uh, asked to speak at, at a camp where my, my daughter was with her school. And our theme for the camp was simple ways to wreck your life. <laughs> How many of you know it's really easy to wreck your life, right? A quick decision. You can really mess things up really bad with a simple decision. And one of the things, one of the challenges we put before these folks, especially with so many young men and, and young women there, we said pornography is a simple way to mess your life up, to wreck your life. And here's where the both and of amazing life and amazing grace come into play. If you have a community, a religious community, that's all amazing life and no amazing grace, what a miserable place to be. Because you have this standard of perfection that nobody can live up to. And whether it's pornography or something else, if you can't measure up to that expectation and you fall short, what do you do with that? Because if you come out with that, what? There's shame. There's casting of stones. You're told how bad you are and how you've got to get your act together. If there's no grace and all high standard, all amazing life, no amazing grace, that's a horrible place to be. Horrible place to be. And in so many churches, that's where people feel trapped when it comes to pornography or whatever. And then on the other side of the equation, if you've got all amazing grace but no amazing life, anything goes. And for someone that wants to try to live a God-honoring life, Lots of acceptance, lots of tolerance, no accountability, no challenge. 
And when it comes to pornography, we need to challenge our young men especially to say, Jesus of Nazareth taught us something amazing. Well, he taught lots of amazing things. One of the amazing things he taught us is if you're not married to the woman, don't even look at her lustfully. There's a whole lot of horrible things that happen as you start down that path. When you start treating women like objects instead of the people made in the image of God that they are. Are we seeing any of that being played out in our society right now? And so you want to challenge, right? You want to challenge these young men to say, absolutely, follow that teaching of Jesus. Don't even look upon a woman in a lustful way. But what if you can have both? Amazing grace and amazing life. One of the things I was so excited about being at that camp is she had teachers at that school, principal at that school, who are trying to do both. And now, think how different that is. Because now a young man can come up to one of those leaders, come up to one of those teachers and say, you know, when you're talking about pornography, man, I'm struggling with that. Think how different it is when both of those are in play. Because the first words out of our mouth are, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you for taking this step. I'm so proud of you that you want to live a God-honoring life. I'm so proud of you that you want to treat women with dignity and respect. I'm so proud of you that you don't want to go down that path of addiction that's destroying lives. I'm so proud of you. I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to, I want to cheer you on. And we can also come from that place of amazing grace of, you know what, brother? It's a struggle. You know, they say half of guys are, are watching it and half of the half that say they're not watching it are lying, Right? You know, brother, we are, we, we understand all of sin and fallen short of the God. We all have our stuff. Who here has got some stuff in some way or shape or form? All right. We got stuff. We all got stuff. So there's no stones that are going to be cast here. Instead, we're going to cheer you on. This is your thing. Okay, let's try this. Is it working? Nope. Okay, let's try this. We're in it together. We love you. We're all trying to follow Jesus. We're so thankful for his grace, removing his shame from us so that we can have freedom. And we can follow you together and try to become the men and women that you've called us to be. Do you see how different that is when the gospel is in play? When it's both. The amazing life that Jesus lived. The amazing grace that he offers to all who are in Christ. Quick uh, related note of that. Again, how many of you are sinners? How many? Just checking. Okay. Everyone raise your hand. Um, I won't ask this next one, but I, 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 would, I know there's a whole lot of you who desire to follow Jesus with all your heart. We could use more of you in our youth ministry. We would absolutely love that because we've got a ton of young men and women who are coming on Wednesday nights and we could use more people who would be willing to say, hey, I get it and I want to inspire you. Follow me as I follow Christ. But if, you, if working with teens is not your thing, then I want to encourage you in, on your, the, to look at your, your blank, uh, the last blank on your list because it says something to this effect of, okay, if it's not going to be youth ministry, then... Are you becoming your blank's greatest asset? Because you're leading something. You're leading something. At least you're called to lead something. Are you your family's greatest asset? Are you your team's greatest asset? Are you your school's greatest asset? Your class's greatest asset? Are you somebody's greatest asset? And one of the things that's so wonderful about this challenge is, again, anyone can apply it because one of the ways we can lead is by example. We used to call it LBE. I need to get some of these phrases that I used to use back into my vocabulary. LBE, lead by example. And as the worship band comes up, we're going to close with a song. Let me share this story from your camp, this example that I saw. It might seem like this little thing, but these things matter. Leading by example matters. So at the camp, there was a guy there named Vincent. Vincent, and he's an outstanding hockey player. 
just a standout. Well, he's also a real intense competitor. And so he's in the goal in, in an important game and, and a puck gets by him and he takes his stick and he just slams it against the post. And his goalie coach pulls him off the ice. He looks him in the eye and he says, hey, Vincent, the only person who was perfect had holes in his hands. Vincent's like, what? Because <laughs> he didn't know about Jesus. And that conversation led to other conversations which eventually led to a conversion where this young man gave his life to Jesus Christ at a hockey camp, at a Christian hockey camp. And like all of us, you know, Vincent, he's, he's, got, he's struggling right through life, but he's trying to make changes. And I had a chance to see an example of the type of change he's trying to make. We were going to have our second session, and so people, the students are coming in, and evidently there was an arrangement that had been made where somebody was supposed to be sitting on this couch. All right, we had a couch and Four cool kids were sitting on the couch, including Vincent, and cool kid number five comes in, and he's like, I'm part of the cool kid club here, and I was supposed to have a seat on that couch. And so he's just kind of like, you know? And what did Vincent do? Vincent got up. Vincent said, here, take my seat. And now this kid, cool kid number five, is in a dilemma because he's not as cool as Vincent. So when cool kid number, you know, Vincent stands up, and cool kid number five is like, oh, wait, I can't get out cooled in this situation. I can't take his seat. So there's kind of this awkward motion where he just sat back down on the chair. What did Vincent do? He came and sat next to him. I talked to the teachers afterwards. I said, tell me about your school right now. They said, Chris, we've never had a class like this because they've got a whole class full of young men and women who are trying to lead by example. And these choices that may seem very simple, just as there's simple ways to wreck your life, there's simple things you can do to change the culture of that school. And they said, because Vincent and others are trying to follow Jesus, it's affecting everything. Leaders are a blank's greatest asset. So as we close this service, would you join me in praying this song, Amazing Grace, because it all starts there. It all starts not with trying to become perfection, but to say there was only one and he had holes in his hands who was perfect. And because he lived the life I can't live, my shame can be removed so that I can follow him out of grace and I can extend that grace to others. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that we could pray this song in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.